Hey, assalamu alaikum, peace. Now I'm aware that I haven't recorded a personal episode in a while. Uh, no reason for that aside from the fact that personal episodes just take a lot more time to record and to produce than a conversation between myself and Elias. But I am keen to do this because I know so many of you enjoy it and get a lot from it. And I get most of the questions related to my personal episodes too. There are two particular topics that you would have expected me to have covered by now. One is divorce and the other one is being a dad. I mean the title is Divorce Muslim Dad, right? So in this episode we're talking about parenting. Becoming a father, becoming a parent, two different things. And then becoming a co-parent with somebody I'm no longer married to and how to navigate that. Had to go deep on this one. I've tried to create a structure, not sure I've, I've succeeded, but I hope you get something from it anyway. It's not time to make a change, just relax. Take it easy, you're still young, that's your fault There's so much you have to know Find a girl, settle down If you want, you can marry Look at me, I am old, but I'm happy I was once like you are now and I know that it's not easy to be calm when you found something going on. But take your time, think a lot. I think of everything you've got. For you will still be here tomorrow, but your dreams may not. pull up outside the faceless yet familiar building the lifeless trees silhouette against the winter sky I've made this journey countless times over the last six months I just wasn't expecting to be here again so soon This is where joy, hope, and despair live side by side. The strangest of bedfellows. Tentatively pushing through the double doors, I enter another world. The air inside seems different. Stagnant. Neutral, pregnant, pregnant with foreboding, but also pregnant with hope. 
as I stare down the endless corridor. The fluorescent tube lights flicker and hum. I notice the floor, a seamless, hardened, speckled pink plastic moulded to the skirting. It feels abandoned and inhospitable. The irony isn't lost. Without warning, a woman wails in the distance. It's unfamiliar, but it sharpens my mind. It brings me back to the present. I need to go. I need to go now. So I take off, striding down the endless corridor. My footsteps echoing as I imagine a prison warden's might at lights out. The whitewashed walls become a blur and are punctuated by prime coloured signs offering advice, warnings, and instruction. No syringes. Staff only. Wash hands before entering. Only use on electrical fires. My breath shortens as I get closer. I've never done this before. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what's about to happen and why isn't anybody here to help me? Get a grip, man. Stay strong. That's your job. The signs continue to whisk past. Morgue. Surgery. Outpatients. Children's inpatient. Antenatal unit. Neonatal unit. Postnatal unit maternity ward. I arrive outside the doors, trying in vain to steady my breath. I've got to be strong. You must stay strong. I put my ear to the door. There's no commotion inside. No panic. Just hushed northern feminine accents offering words of support and comfort. Standing there trying to compose myself, I realise perhaps for the first time that my life is about to change forever. Thoughts race through my mind. How did I get here? What are we going to do for money? Will she be okay? What does all of this mean? Why do I feel so numb? I'm just a 24-year-old kid with no idea what he's doing. There are no instructions, no guidance. I can only think of cliches and platitudes. But you see, my life is about to change because I'm about to become a father. You know, nobody parents in a vacuum. What I mean by that is 
everyone parents according to what they know. And that's either informed by good role models or it isn't like much of life. And becoming a parent for me was a strange strange phenomenon because something had clearly changed in my life something really significant had happened but I didn't feel it it's almost as if I wasn't expecting it to happen or I didn't know how to react and that made me feel odd I remember hearing about a lot of my friends who had had children and they would describe it as incredibly emotional um, I'm talking about the birth here and the fact that they were overcome that it was yeah full of full of these these emotions and for me I just felt very numb I didn't know how to react I'm pretty sure the way I did react was a bit weird I just I didn't do much I didn't jump up in the air I didn't scream I didn't I just did I guess what I normally do which is I did my my duty I called people uh, my family I think I called a few friends but I was alone at the hospital I was alone um, didn't really have anybody to share it with and I guess that was out of choice it's a bit of a strange choice if you think about it a lot of the time you have friends and family who are at least in the waiting room um, whilst you do what you have to do and I did, I, I was at the birth, uh, I didn't escape that, and I'm not sure how I feel about that now. I mean, clearly, clearly blokes are expected to be there now. I mean, my father, my mother tells me that my father was sitting at home watching the Wimbledon final. Um, Ili Nastasi versus Bjorn Borg? Oh my god, that was ages ago. Yeah, so he was he was in West London watching that on the TV and my mum was in hospital giving birth. And once it was done and dusted, they gave him a call. And uh, yeah, that's the way it was done. And now we've gone to the other, I don't want to say extreme because I don't want to get horrible emails. But yeah, kind of to the other side now where we as blokes are fully involved. I mean, I went to antenatal classes the whole breathing stuff you know if you can if you can imagine a very socially conservative muslim couple going to antenatal classes it felt a bit odd but at the same time you're all in the same boat you know you look around and they're just a bunch of awkward guys sitting there with their wives as their wives close their eyes and do the whole breathing thing so we did that so i was good in that way uh, open-minded you could say and also yes I was present at the birth which is kind of seared into my mind both of them for different reasons that we 
don't really want to go into and I don't want to revisit. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure whether or not I think that's healthy. But that aside, so functionally everything happened and I was now a dad. Um, actually, no, let's correct that. Let's use Let's use the right language. I was a father, which is different to being a dad. I didn't know how to be a dad. I mean, I was just starting out, right? But I was a father. That was a fact. And what I was going to quickly have to pick up was what it meant to parent. So three things there. Becoming a father. Learning to parent. And becoming a dad. And all of that stuff is tricky. It's tricky when you don't really know what you're doing. And I guess I wasn't unique in that regard. You know, I was just a young parent, a 24-year-old guy who hadn't had any previous relationships, who had got married, and about 10 months after he's married, is having a child with somebody he barely knows. I mean, I know that's just odd, isn't it? But that's the reality, not just for me, but just for lots of people. They live this, this reality. And uh, I think in, in, in a previous episode, I've been speaking with Elias. And, you know, his recommendation is is that for, for people not to have children unless they are secure in that relationship. Because essentially, a lot of us do get together with people we hardly know. That's not to say we don't know people at all. But ultimately, just revisiting the saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, which was you only really get to know someone when you live with them, when you travel with them, when you do business with them. And I think there's one other. Um, so effectively yeah fine you know best case scenario families meet you know people meet they go out for dinner you spend time together you show yourself your best faces you don't really get under the skin of the other person you don't have any physical intimacy most of the time um and you then are having a child quite soon afterwards and the reason why it happens quite soon afterwards and this isn't really for this episode but it's to do with the idea around contraception and education around contraception. And there is quite a lot of confusion out there, but that's not really for me to go into. That's that's something that Elias is a bit of an expert on. So we'll, we'll definitely have an episode talking about uh, family planning. So, yeah, um, the idea of kind of having a child quite quickly and then having to kind of learn as you go along. And it was rocky. I mean, our relationship was already rocky. When you add a child to the mix, uh, some people believe that that kind of creates a focus. I mean, how many times have you heard the expression or heard people say, yeah, we were going through a tough time, so we decided to have another child. I've heard that quite often. And I don't think that's good advice. I don't think that's a good way to think because, you know, a child adds a whole different level of commitment and a lot of stress to a relationship. So really, I think a relationship needs to be quite solid, um, emotionally, financially quite solid. That's not to say that you need to be rich. You just need to kind of have a, a base. Um in order to, to have children and weather 
all of the difficulties that come with it. But that wasn't our situation. So didn't have a lot of money, bit of a rocky relationship. Well, bit of a rocky relationship. And now we have a child and it was hard. It was really hard. Um, our, our first was early and spent some time in the special care baby unit and we had to to sleep there as well whilst uh, she uh, got to a a sufficient weight to to leave and I remember during that time um, I felt quite useless I mean clearly the mother has a role and I think a lot of fathers do feel like this just in general they feel a little bit of a, at a loose end and they find it difficult to relate to a baby because baby's not providing a lot of feedback there's a lot of crying there's a lot of pooping um and there's a lot of sleeping and that's kind of for about six months and you're not really feeding the child although you are involved in some of the chores it's kind of you know in the disrupted sleep and all of that stuff but you're not really engaging with your child and so i found that quite difficult you know i i've you know i felt a little bit distant from the process and that after a while drives you a bit nuts you know you start to question yourself you know as to why you're not feeling the things you should be feeling and yeah i know i know for the mothers out there who are listening to this i get it you guys get the same thing but not just for six months for the entire lives or for your entire lives you're kind of second guessing yourself as to what you're feeling about how you're doing with your kids and all that kind of stuff and i know mothers feel certain things more intensely than fathers but i'm just speaking from a personal perspective um yeah it was just it was just it was just odd it was odd to to now be a father and have to learn to be a dad but you know life's life so you pick those things up and it's not as if we didn't talk about things related to being parents. I mean, of course we did. You know, we had dreams and aspirations. It's just that those dreams and aspirations were based upon what we knew of the world at that moment in time. You know, if I think, if I think about the way I parent my kids now and the way my ex-wife, you know, how we both co-parent our children now, it's completely different. And that's the really weird thing. You know, you start off the journey seeing the world in one particular way and raising your kids to fit in with that world. And then as time goes by, you change. And your worldview changes. And if your worldview changes, it impacts upon the way that you, you bring up your kids. I mean, one of my first role models, if we want to talk about role models in parenting, was, um, was Super Nanny. Do you guys remember Super Nanny? For those of you who don't know, um, please go to YouTube and search for Super Nanny BBC. There was a time in the early noughties, around 2004, I think, five. There was this really popular program on television about a woman who was a nanny, a professional nanny, uh, who would go around to the houses of real families having problems um, 
with their kids, with their kids' behavior. And she would basically go in and sort out the problem and set, set some rules and guidelines. Now, the world then, I think, is different to the world now in the way people view parenting. But at the time, it was a case of this super nanny was really popular and a lot of people would follow her advice. And it was quite strict. It was about setting very clear boundaries. I think she might have invented the naughty step or at least popularized the naughty step. So if you ever see the naughty step being used, I think it's down to this woman. And essentially, she would talk to children, be quite cut and dry with them. Not rude, but very cut and dry with them. Uh, not allow their tantrums to emotionally impact her in the way they was impacting the parents. And and then st state what would happen, the consequences of breaking rules. And then she would follow through with those. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's the problem with that? It sounds okay. Um, for me, <laughs> uh, for if you imagine, let's just, just let's just put two and two together here. Uh, somebody who doesn't know how to parent and then is introduced to super nanny. Think about that for a second. I'm keen to be a good parent. I don't know how to. So I watch super nanny and I try and follow through what super nanny has to say. Um, let's just say my personality at the time enjoyed uh, setting rules and following through without any kind of emotional bias on consequences. Now, don't let your imaginations wander too much. That doesn't mean that I was physical towards my children. No, I wasn't. But I was, uh, you could say, aggressive when it came to to dealing with their misdemeanors. You know, there wasn't a lot of leeway. There was a lot of naughty step. Um, you know, we implemented, you know, a lot of going to bed early. You know, if the kid doesn't eat their food, then go hungry. Um yeah, I guess there wasn't a lot of compassion. Um, I mean, there was from my, my ex-wife because she's that way inclined. Uh, but we did both try really hard to kind of work out how to do this whole parenting thing and largely failed. But, you know, I'm guessing a lot of you are parents, right? And And you can relate to that. You know, I guess parenting is just about learning to fail gracefully that's 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 it um a lot of the time you just think you're just concerned about whether or not you can trust your own judgment about what you're asking of your children and that's like a constant battle you know you're thinking right this is the way things should be done am i sure sort of it's not the way i used to think but it is the way i think now but it might not be the way i think in the future but ultimately, as parents, we need to make judgments. And we make those judgments in the best interest of our kids based on our own stories that we have grown up with, that we have developed, what we take as inspiration and information. And then we just try and implement that. And every generation that comes along looks to learn from their parents' generation and take the good bits and leave the bad bits. And it will be no different for my children. They will look at me and say, yep, there's lots of good things that bloke does, but he can be a bit of a plonker 
as well. So we'll leave the plonker bits aside and we'll keep the good bits. And they are they are welcome to do that. So kids, if you're listening, uh, don't feel bad that you think I'm a bit of a plonker sometimes. I already know this. There are endless things for parents to consider. Once you have this physical being that you've been blessed with, now it's over to you. Your life is no longer about you, it is about another human being. And that process is never reversed. And in many ways, it allows you to reveal different layers of who you are. And I think that's the case for all of the people in our lives, whether they be brothers or sisters or uncles or aunts or grandparents or partners, mothers, fathers. All of these relationships allow us to reveal different parts of ourselves in order to become whole. I truly believe that, which is why I think having children is so important. Because there is no more intense relationship that a human being will ever have than with their child. No more intense than with their child, not with their partner, not with their parent, with their child. You feel ultimately responsible. And it's a difficult one to manage constantly. It's constantly in flux. That's the maddening thing about it. There are moments of great joy, moments of great despair. And ultimately you share all of this together, but because the nature of that relationship is so deep, it allows you to go deep within yourself, to find resources that you never knew that you had in order to survive, to thrive, to build, to go again. And I, th- and I guess we all know that much of life is not about the falling over bit it's about the getting up and going again and i my children are a major source of energy for me after the divorce my focus very much became centered around the well-being of the children and it was that focus that enabled me to push through through the really dark and difficult times. Now, don't get me wrong, that level of intensity can also be in some ways negative or in some instances negative. But largely, I mean, on the whole, it's it's a hugely positive, positive force. So coming back to, coming back to this idea that uh, there are a multitude of things that you need to consider, you know, there's a few that I've noted down that I think are probably pertinent to to this podcast and the first one i've written down is forming an islamic identity now what do i mean by that well you know a baby's a baby but we have you know as muslims we have certain rituals that take place in order to from a very early age almost from day one to help a child and the parent to identify as as Muslim parents and for the child to be identified as Muslim and I'm talking about identity here not culture not heritage just identity you know what do you think of yourself 
as. And uh, one of the things that we were really keen on doing was to ensure that our children weren't confused about who they are. And again, this isn't unique to Muslims. There are people all over the world now. I mean, we live in a globalized society, which is, you know, increasingly mixed and integrated in terms of race, in terms of culture, heritage, belief. And a lot of us are afraid. A lot of us are afraid of losing things that we want to pass down to our children. And you see that in macro politics. You see people when immigration is raised um, as a topic of discussion. Uh, the host community, the majority, you know, sees it as a potential threat to some of some of the host community see it as a potential threat to the way they live and their values and their idea of history and belonging. And so this is a fear that kind of runs through all people. And as parents, you want to pass down who you are to your children. You don't want them to be you, but you do want to pass down an identity. I mean, there are some people who say, no, 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 you don't really want to do that. You know, you just want to pass down some values. Well, values is part of identity, you know, and people of faith want to pass down their faith to their children. Now, what their children do with that faith, they're ultimately not responsible for. I mean, some parents act like they are, but the way I see things and, you know, it's a case of, you know, you you instill a certain ethos and a certain belief in your children. And then at some point they become sentient adults who have the ability to critically reason and ultimately need to find their own fit in the world. And you hope that what you've done is enough in order for them to be the next generation of 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 good Muslims, you know, doing good in the world, you know, respecting their families, respecting their communities, living by you know, the right values. But ultimately, you don't know. So we clearly wanted that. Um, and so we we thought that the best thing to do would be to send them to a an Islamic school. That, I mean, these, these schools do exist in the UK. Some of them are uh, private. Actually, yeah, the Islamic schools are generally private schools they're private fee-paying schools and we had one that was local which was quite well respected we were keen for the quality of the education to be quite high so so we ensured that was the case and we wanted the school also to be diverse i mean i'm from a south southeast asian heritage you know, background indian um, my ex-wife was white english convert you know, our children are of mixed heritage and you could call it, you could say mixed race as much as I don't like that phrase. And the children in the school came from all walks of life as well. So that was that was great because I was from West London and that's what I wanted. But really, we sent our children to this school, not for the school to teach them about Islam. That wasn't the role of the school and we knew it. What we did want is for our children to to feel comfortable as a minority community of Muslims in a majority community of non-Muslims. Because what happens, or what I can say from personal experience, and ultimately what drives the decisions you make and how you behave is on your personal experience and your insight. 
My personal experience was that I found myself growing up trying to be something that I wasn't. I wasn't very secure in my identity and a lot of second generation immigrants are not secure in their identity. They don't feel fully part of where they are and they don't fully relate to where their parents are from. So they're, they're caught in this limbo land and that limbo land, it creates like a friction and a tension and that needs to be resolved. And so sometimes, you know, people get into subcultures, right? Um, other times, uh, you know, they they take on the host community culture in order to be accepted. Um, this is also known as a selling out. Um, and people like that are disparagingly called coconuts here in the UK because they're brown on the outside, white on the inside. Um, and so, and you can actually become, you know, self-hating as well. You know, that's a phenomenon. That's a well-known phenomenon where, you know, you feel that your community isn't as good as another community. So you, you take on the identity of that other community, but it's not you. And ultimately, at some point in your life, you'll realize that. And it'll be, you know, quite a quite an upsetting thing to realize so yeah as parents we you want to feel your ch your children to be absolutely secure in their identity but what is that identity that identity is to be british to be a hundred percent british notice i didn't say english because there is a difference between english and british english i think has links to ethnicity to white ethnicity in the way that british doesn't so i'm more comfortable with british than English, although I was born in England, which I find interesting. So they have, you know, we want our children to be 100% comfortable with that. Also, with their faith, to know that their faith is respected, that they must respect their own faith, that their community respects their faith, faith and society as a whole, if their faith is challenged or their identity of their faith is challenged, that they feel comfortable in in remaining within that faith that basically they are strong they are strong in that identity and that means having to make extra effort when it comes to ramadan fasting when it comes to celebrations like eid um, when it comes to the time when people go on the pilgrimage annually to mecca when it comes to the islamic lunar calendar and understanding the holidays and the months and the historical uh, historical moments and the reason this is such a massive challenge for Muslim parents in in uh, countries where the majority is not Muslim is that society as a whole isn't geared up to celebrate what you celebrate or to notice what you notice or you know just take Christmas for example I mean don't get me wrong I love Christmas I mean I, I you know I don't shout from the rooftops but you know I really enjoy Christmas you know the lights are up everybody's enjoying themselves you know there's good cheer you know uh, there's great charity going on it's, it's just a lovely time of year but the thing is it's completely supported by media it's supported by wider society everywhere you look about four months before christmas it begins and it does not end now a lot of people will say oh yeah that's just to do with this commercial side of things it doesn't really matter it doesn't really matter you feel christmassy now, if you're listening and you're Muslim and you live as a minority, then ask yourself how Eid feels compared to Christmas or whatever festival you have wherever you are. It doesn't really compare. 
if I start, you know, it was either a few days ago uh, here. Um, and, you know, you wouldn't know it. It was on a Sunday, so it was quiet anyway. You drive out, you know, there aren't, there aren't kind of moons and crescents hanging off the, the lampposts, right? You're not seeing like special orders, buy one, get one, buy one mango, get one free yeah, in the, in the local supermarket. Uh, it's just, it's a regular day, but for you it's special. But how are your children supposed to feel it's special? It requires effort. And to be fair, things are a lot better than they were when I was growing up. Because when I was growing up, it was dry, man. I mean, mum, I know you don't listen to my podcast, but just in case somebody doesn't tell my mum, probably my sister, uh, either was pretty dry. Eid was going round to my parents' friends' houses, having some food, which was nice, knocking about with a few of the kids, and then driving to another house and doing much the same. Now, again, you're probably thinking, well, what's wrong with that? The problem is that my experience of living in London was that there was a lot of driving uh, especially for Eid prayer in the morning where we went from West London all the way to Central Mosque sometimes, Regent's Park Mosque, which is in Regent's Park. And it would take sometimes an hour, hour and a half, and then an hour and a half back. And then we'd just go to these houses and that was it. And it just, it lacked something. I'm not complaining, by the way. I don't want it to sound like I'm complaining, you know. Thank God we had, we had this. But thinking about today and what you're competing for. You're competing for the identity of your children with other things which wish to influence your kids. Primarily, consumerism. I mean, consumerism is now rocket-propelled through social media. And social media is all-encompassing. And uh, we don't really have the answers as to how to regulate social media for kids. We'll we'll get on to that in a second because that's one of my other points. So, yeah, you know, identity was super important. That's why we decided to send them to kind of broad schools, which had Islam as its ethos, which was outward looking, not inward looking. um, So that our children could come out of primary school being very, very clear about who they are. And to a large degree, it worked for us. I'm not saying it's going to work for you, but it definitely worked for us. Um, Right. What else have I got on this list? Right, parenting versus managing. Again, need to make the distinction here. As a new parent, even if you're one of these people, for me, one of these annoying people who actually knew how to be a parent, I always found that annoying. Just some people who naturally seem to know how to be a parent. Now I know it's not that it was natural, it's just that they learnt how to be a parent by observing good parenting or you know, having friends around that, that did this. Um, very quickly the honeymoon period ends and you're left with sleepless nights endless nappy changes constant worry about the health of your child immunization debates with people who are 100% anti-immunization to the other lot to 100% immunization and everybody in between Um, there's just There's just a lot of management that takes place with kids. And after a while, 
this management mode becomes automated. And the actual parenting side of things, which I would classify as the emotional side of the development of your child, that kind of, it doesn't get pushed to one side, but yeah, no, it does. It does get slightly pushed aside because we are too busy dealing with the day-to-day practical side of things of bringing up our children. And ultimately we, this sounds really bad. It's not meant to, but we stop seeing them. I mean, clearly there are moments where we have tender moments with our children. But as time goes by, you know, in our desire for the autonomy that we've lost in our lives, you know, to rush them off to bed, to make sure they're sleeping in the mornings, to, you know, um, you know, whatever else, we stop seeing them all the time. And we see beings that need to be managed. And I think that's actually quite dangerous when we stop seeing our children. And we will look after them, right? You know, we're feeding them. We are taking them on holiday. We are sending them to school. We are talking to them, but are we connecting with them? And this is the thing that as my children have got older, and I haven't mentioned how old my kids are, which I should do really. My 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 daughter is seventeen. She just finished her first year at A level. And my son is fifteen, and he is about to sit his GCSEs next year. And remember, I think I've mentioned that my my ex and myself we we homeschool in between us. So he's not actually in a conventional state school. Uh, we. We school him, but again, we'll, we'll get into that. <clears throat> and so, as 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 they've got older, I become very very conscious of the fact that they are becoming they are becoming exponentially independent. Now, by exponentially independent, I mean in the early years they are totally dependent on you, and that continues for a long time. It continues for so long, in fact, that you take it for granted that they are dependent on you. And there comes a point at which, though, they enter into their teens and they start to develop their own mind and their own way of thinking. And you can't parent them the way that you used to. And so it dawns on you that, hang on, they're leaving. They're actually leaving. I mean, they began the process of leaving when they started walking. They took that first step. But you didn't recognize that that first step was their first step away from you. Think about that for a second. The first step that the child takes is the first step towards independence. It is the first step away from you. But you don't see it that way. We don't see it that way. And it's only when they start to answer back and they start to debate and they start to question and they develop critical reasoning that you start to understand that they are on their journey and they are well on their journey. And that's the way I see my kids right now. They are, they're leaving. I mean, they're not there yet, but before I know it, in the next few years, they will be forging their own path. And as much as that would make me incredibly proud, incredibly happy to see them gaining the confidence to do that, I don't really want to look back and think, you know what, I managed my children. I didn't parent my children. 
I didn't connect with them. I didn't look into their eyes. I didn't hear them. You know, I just basically, I got through it. I don't want to get through it. I want to live it. And I think as, as, as a parent, we're, you know, if you are a parent, we're incredibly privileged because we have the opportunity to live with our children. The critical years. That's what's next on my list. Um, there are actually all of the years are critical. But when I think of the critical years, I think of the first four and the last four. What I mean by that is from ages zero to four and probably... 13 to 17 and they're critical for different reasons uh, from zero to four much of your your cognitive makeup is developed your capacity for i've got to be careful what i say here because a lot of people take me um literally when i say this but from zero to four, you, you're incredibly absorbent and you learn about lots of emotions. And if you are a, a loved child during that period, then you learn about that maternal and paternal love. And it's very, very important. And, and then that's backed up by science now. I mean, so I think culturally it's always been known to um you know to to spend lots of time with your children playing connecting you know sharing emotions together bathing together being physically close you know spiritually close mentally close with your children um and the other side of it is 13 to 17 which is a whole different ball game i mean i'm there right now in this space and any of you who have been in this space or who are in this space you have my commiserations because number one number one rule of 13 to 17 years old is parents can't do anything right it's just a fact um, if you're expecting gratitude forget it if you're expecting consideration, forget it. If you are expecting to be taken for granted, congratulations, that will happen. If you are expecting to connect deeply on a soulful level with your with your child between those ages, good luck. Um, these are the times when you have you try and recreate the past whereby they were hanging off your every word. And now they do think you're a bit of a plonker and they wish they were hanging around with their mates. The thing about this period is, is it's it's incredibly hard. This particular period is very, very hard because if you are a considered parent, you want to connect deeply with your child. You know, they're growing up, they can speak, they can they have their own ideas. But it becomes increasingly difficult to do that because their interests lie elsewhere. And to be fair, from a physiological point of view, their brains aren't fully formed. 
that's true. I've just learned this. Well, I've learned it about a year ago that they have no frontal lobe. You know, in the brain, there's like a bit called the frontal lobe. They don't have it. And it only fully forms by the age of 24. 24. But right now they don't have it. And that impairs judgment. And so when, you know, you're expecting your child to act in a particular way and you cannot for the life of you understand why they've decided to do something in a particular way when the other one was particularly obvious it's basically physiological it's not really their fault but it doesn't stop you acting like a bit of a nut job as a parent doing your heading you know going into a rage kind of shouting or you know uh just going off on one telling them off pulling them up and the problem with all of that is it can create fractures in your relationship if you're not careful it can create fractures kind of emotional fractures which then carry on into later life now i i do my fair share of you know kind of beating myself up as a parent right not in a way that kind of stops me functioning on a day-to-day basis but enough for me to feel a little bit down about certain things that i do like you know if, if i I, I have emotional triggers and if there's anybody who's going to be able to set them off it is your children because you are so invested in them right and when that happens it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to control and so you can rage now that rage can take the form of i mean me personally i'm a bit of a passive aggressive right so i, I want to remain in control but ultimately being in control means not expressing myself and not expressing myself means that it simmers under the surface and then I become a little bit short. No, I become short in the way that I speak and I can spit my words a little bit, you know, like little darts. I can spit them. Um, but I'm learning that this, well, I've learned that this is not healthy and I'm trying to reprogram myself to notice what's going on when I am triggered. That's to do with my own kind of emotional development, which is a process I think needs to continue throughout life because we all have triggers. Um, I'm actually reading a book at the moment. I've just finished it today. It's called Rising Strong by Brené Brown. She also has a program on Netflix. She has one of the most popular, popular TED Talks out there. Highly recommend you go and watch her TED Talk. Brené Brown, B-R-E-N-E, Brown. Um, And the book is called Rising Strong, and I'll just pick it up here. Um, If we are brave enough, often enough, we will fall. This book is about getting back up. It's not a book about not failing or not falling. It's a book about getting back up. And um, it's a beautiful book. And essentially, you know, she, she talks about the idea of first you need to be aware of your emotional shortcomings when they happen. You need to be aware of it. A lot of us are not aware of it. You know, when we're raging, we're not feeling good, right? Something's caused that or there's something within us that's been triggered. So the first thing is noticing that. And the second stage is basically wrestling with it, trying to understand it. Where does it come from? How can you, you know, does it have to end in the way that it normally ends? Or can you rewrite that ending based upon your analysis of your emotional self? 
and ultimately the revolution occurs that's the third stage of it i.e then once you've gone through that process you've kind of you've broken the chain of events and now you're liberated but anyway that's yeah maybe a book i'll i'll speak about more in a future episode um i don't recommend highly i highly do not highly do not recommend i do not recommend living vicariously through your children now who would admit to doing that if you're a father out there with a son and you're into football you'll know what i mean because ultimately we all wanted to be players right i mean i'm you know i'm post 40 and i still think i could i could do a job in center mid you know probably not at premier league level but you know maybe championship maybe league one you know, I've still got the legs not to get up and down the pitch, but as a defensive midfielder, you know, I've got that understanding of the game, right? You know, it's uh, it's not how fast you move, it's how fast you think. Isn't that right, guys? But in all seriousness, when we see our kids and we have a boy, I said a boy because boys primarily go for football, but it, including girls. But a guy, you know, thinks, yeah, my boy, he's a player. He could make it. And so we tell ourselves, yeah, yeah, fine. You know, we rationalize it saying, I'm not the pushy parent. Yeah, yeah, let's go to football. And then you see them score an incredible goal. And in the back of your mind, you think, you know what? This kid's got a chance. And before you know it, a couple of years down the line, maybe your kid's been scouted by a local club. And now your dreams are in full swing, right? You're thinking about your boy playing in the Premier League for your team living a a wealthy healthy status high status life and before you know it, you are living vicariously through them and that isn't healthy and that doesn't just happen with football dads it happens with doctors it happens with parents who effectively want to manage the lives of their kids and again, we are excellent at rationalizing why we do this. We push our kids into particular professions because we think it's a good thing for them. We think it's a safe option for them. But a lot of the time we're living, we're offering advice based on our own insecurities. And we have imperfect knowledge of the world, but we don't act that way. Who, who would have known... Who would have known what the world looks like today, 10 years ago? What the world of employment would look like? The makeup of society, how that would look like? I mean, 40 years ago, I think about 40 years ago in the UK, to be openly homosexual was not a good idea because you were going to be massively discriminated against, right? And if you had told people back then that 40 years from now it will be completely normal well not don't get me wrong not completely normal i know there's still lots of discrimination that takes place but it will be normalized those people would never have believed you so society changes but we as parents offer advice as if we know the future now i'm keen not to not to not to offer certainty to my children guidance yes 
Certainty, no. Because right now the world is changing faster than it ever has done. This is, this is what technology has done. The internet, globalization. The world's a much, much smaller place, much more competitive place. And what drives the ability to be, to live a successful life, meaning in work and in relationships, has changed. But anyway, that's again a whole separate episode. Maybe we'll do that. Okay. I've noted down here. The, the the challenge the challenge of living in the UK I've kind of touched on this already as a minority community especially in this moment in time I don't think I need to tell you that Muslims feel insecure and under threat now for somebody of my age uh, I can understand that feeling because I grew up with it but what's interesting that's happened in the UK is that I've kind of gone through a bit of a cycle. You know, I grew up knowing that other people saw me as a packy, right? Um, that to be racially abused was a real risk. And that I wasn't a fully accepted part of society even though I was born here. That's what I grew up with even in London. But over the course of time, I reconciled a lot of that because I felt as a country, we were moving in the right direction in terms of integration. So I was able to carry my faith without much of a problem. But over the last... Well, I guess since the last maybe 10 years, things have got quite bad. I mean, again, don't get me wrong. We don't have the National Front marching on the streets, attacking halal meat shops and anybody who's brown. But we do have lots of hate crime. And a significant proportion of that hate crime is targeted at Muslims and, uh, and targeted at Jews. Who happen to be religious minorities, significant religious minorities. And that does make you question being here. You know, if you're if you're born somewhere, I think it's fair to to think that you should feel that that place is home. And I can't say that with my hand on my heart that that the UK does feel like home. It's an incredible place with incredible people and I have wonderful friends and a and a rich life with lots of opportunity. But home is is a feeling. And it's just not quite there. And I've I've tried to get there. But it's been difficult for me. But what does this mean for my kids? Again, this is another hard one. 
Yeah, I believe that in society we have some real issues relating to race. And these issues hark back to empire. And the legacy of empire. And more specifically, the, rec the lack of rec reconciliation of the UK's past. And this has given certain elements of society uh, a superiority complex and other elements of society an inferiority complex. And I have to wrestle with how to share this legacy with my children. Because think about it, they are now third generation. I used to go back to India um, with my family on a regular basis. So I have a connection with India. I mean, it's not home and I feel like a foreigner there, but I have connection with it. My children have never been. They don't really speak much of the language. I mean, some would argue I don't really speak much of the language, which is true, but I can understand it. I can understand Hindi, Urdu, which, by the way, is the same, pretty much the same language, but... Uh, if you want to impress people or call yourself a polyglot, then you can say you speak Hindi and Urdu. Job done. Um, so yeah, what do I do as a parent? Do I teach them about what I understand of empire? Do I pass on the legacy that I have carried with me? Do I help them to understand the problems around race that we have in society? Because there are risks associated with that. I mean, you just want your kids to be happy, don't you? You want them to be happy with who they are. But ultimately, society will tell them who they are. According to what society knows. For example, my children have not a particularly complicated, but quite an interesting cultural background they are they have dual heritage they have a nationality which is British which is different to English they have a culture they are multicultured they have a history as well now that's quite a lot to take on board and it's quite a lot for a parent to kind of square off. I mean, on, on my ex's side, it's relatively straightforward. She's white English. And if you go back through the generations, you know, there's a smattering of maybe Scots or Irish or something in there. But largely it's pretty consistent. On my side of the family, I mean, you've got... Uh, India but then half my family had to leave India after partition and most of those people then f have found themselves across the world in different cities right so just think about that side of the story I mean the reason why the country was split is directly related to empire the reason I'm here is to do with the legacy of empire and post 
in a post-Second World War Britain. I was in I was in the car with my daughter only yesterday, I think, and we were talking about why she isn't considered white. Because in her mind, well, she has a white mother and a brown father. So why is she considered not white? And I had to explain to her that white is the standard by which everything is measured. And it was a bit of an eye-opener for her. And then we started talking about, you know, um, the white standards of beauty, for example, or culture. Um, and all of the other things which are standardised as white and everything else is compared against. And I could see, I could see that, that, that she had this realisation. And that's a process that a lot of people who are not white go through. Especially in the UK. They realise that they are different because society treats them differently even though you would say to most people or most people would say to you that that isn't the case that is the mostly unspoken truth and sometimes it's the spoken truth I say to her, I say to my daughter actually she she says to me she relays stories from school, which are which are kind of heartbreaking, really, but they're just young people acting out what they know. So when my son was in a school, which was for a short period of time, he remember he has a white white mother and a brown father. The you know he'd get called curry muncher. It wasn't a term of endearment. That comes from somewhere, right? He's seen as something and not as something else. When my daughter's in school, you know, the brown kids talk about the white people in negative ways and the white kid talk about the brown people in negative ways. And it's it's quite sad, really. Now, I know that, you know, lots of countries around the world have this issue, but I'm talking about parenting. And how to help your kids navigate these issues around identity, heritage, tradition, culture, nationality. Not so straightforward, but it's critically important. Um, so, so either you instigate the conversations that need to happen, which is kind of the way I go. Or you wait for them to wake up or for society to wake them up. And sometimes that can be a rude awakening. Not what I'd recommend anyway. Right. Going for over an hour now. It's probably the longest one I've done. I think we'll end on. Hmm. I think we'll end on this. To be a parent is to be blessed. It's a never-ending journey. 
and it's one which requires guidance. You can't rationalise, ultimately rationalise parenting. As a Muslim, most of the time you have to realise you're in God's hands. That is, that it is by Allah's grace that you are able to parent, that you are able to weather the storms, that you are able to overcome and to go again. And to recognise that is important. And as with most things, our relationship with Allah determines how we behave. If we understand that we worship him through love, fear and hope in equal measure, then we will find a balance in the way that we approach life and yes, in the way that we parent. But if we are overcome with fear, which unfortunately I think a lot of us are overcome with fear, that it makes us act in ways in which are sometimes contrary to our faith. Because when people are afraid, people act afraid. They lose patience. They make knee-jerk reactions. They're easy to provoke. Sound familiar? Our faith this wonderful faith, this incredible faith that we've been blessed with teaches us to be emotionally resili resilient, provides a blueprint for living a wholesome and good life, one which respects the people around us one which respects God's creation and offers us the opportunity to live our best life. All we have to do is to learn how to do it from the example of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and a deep understanding of his life. And I mean a deep understanding, not a superficial, you're able to quote the odd thing here and there, but a deeper understanding. And to understand something deeply, you have to live it. You have to live it, or you have to study it. And if you study it, you have to make sure that the people you study from are people who are going to leave you in a better state, spiritually than when you met them for the first time. So wherever you are, whether you are someone who's single right now, who's dreaming of becoming married and being a parent, or you are a parent in the early years, or like me in the later years, or whose children have grown up and they've flown the nest, I pray that Allah blesses all of you, 
and allows us the opportunity to have the relationships with our children that are unlike any other. Phew. Wow, that was a long episode, wasn't it? Well, if you did make it all the way through, um, have you got anything better to do? Only kidding. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much. Totally appreciate you taking out the time to do that. Uh, got a couple of things coming up. This week, I'll be recording an episode with a friend a close friend who is also divorced but this guy's got remarried and he's got some stories to tell and I'd like to be doing more of this because as I say doing uh, my personal stories as much as it's it's great and I'm glad you like it it is quite taxing in terms of time um, and actually talking to people other people and getting their perspectives is probably as interesting, if not more interesting, than what I have to say about me. So yeah, we're going to go down that route. I'm still searching for for a woman to take part in the podcast. Let me be accurate there. Um, yeah, so if you are somebody who would like to do an episode, I'm totally open to that. If you've got a story to tell, then get in touch, divorcedmuslimdad at gmail.com. If you are single and you want to talk about that, or if you are divorced, or if you are married, you know, this. I don't mean recording a live counselling session. I'm not a counsellor, remember that. I'm talking about me helping you to tell your story if you think it's of benefit to other people. And I'm guessing it is. Um, and I'd ask you to be brave. I know it's tough, and I know we generally come from a community where, you know, we're quite conservative about this stuff. But if you do have a, st- a story to tell and you'd like to share it, then then get in touch. DivorceMuslimDad at gmail dot com. You'll find me on Twitter at m o Twitter and Instagram at m o i a z a m. And I'll see you next time.